Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Thank you for joining. My name is Chris Epting. This is The Moment, of course, and each week I get together with somebody who who shares and reflects upon really big moments in their life, um, for better or the worse, actually, and how that helped shape their life. And today I've got a really special guest. He's thought by many to be one of the great keyboard players on the planet. He's certainly that, but he's more than that, too. Jordan Rudis is a uh, he's a futurist. He develops applications regarding how to uh, play keyboards and create music and sounds in so many different ways. He's been part of a prog metal, legendary prog metal band called Dream Theater for 20 years now. And and I've known Jordan for about 10 years, and what was really great about him is when I told him, asked him to do this show, when we got together recently, he had really prepared. He really mapped out the moments in his life that made a difference. And so he did that, but he added something extra special. Near the end of the show, he even created a musical piece that sort of walks through, kind of a little mini music biography he created just for the moment where you will hear him play, hear him describe even more things about his life. I'm really excited about it. It's a beautiful piece. But in the meantime, let's get to part one. This is a, a three-segment interview, which will be followed by the music. I think you'll enjoy it. Jordan is a very smart, thoughtful, interesting guy. We'll get into all kinds of topics, including later on in the show, his new upcoming solo album, Next Dream Theater record, coming that imminently. So without further ado, here's part one of my conversation with Jordan Rudis of Dream Theater. Jordan, first of all, thank you for joining me on The Moment today. It's a pleasure. Let's get right into it. Let, let's break down some moments in your life that that were game changers, that, that you look at today and you can easily identify and say, yeah, when that thing happened, things changed for me. Well, what, what comes to mind first? The first thing that comes to mind is actually the day that I started at Juilliard when I was nine years old. Now, hold on. For people that may not be as familiar with your childhood career, yeah. so you started Juilliard at nine years old. How does that even happen? Um, well, let's see, to uh, make the story kind of concise, so I was in second grade and the teacher called up my mother and said, hey, Jordan is playing the piano so beautifully. And my mother was like, what are you talking about? We don't have a piano and he doesn't play the piano. And the teacher was like, yes, he does. He plays the piano, he plays very nicely in the class. So my mother was like, well, okay, I guess I should buy a piano. <clears throat> so she went out literally like a couple days later, there was a beautiful white baby grand piano in the house and I started taking lessons. The first teacher, as soon as he realized that I had a good ear and I could kind of pick out tunes and do stuff, he threw away the book because he was like a jazz guy. He started to teach me all about the jazz chords and different, you know, just kind of how to improvise. And then um, a friend of my parents came over and heard me playing and said, wow, he's really talented. I have a neighbor who's like a very serious piano teacher. You should go there study with this woman. Her name was Magda, a you know, Hungarian, temperamental, passionate, you know, uh, musician, piano teacher. And uh, when I went to study with Magda at eight years old, she was like, I'm going to make sure you go to Juilliard. Magda's uh, son had gone to, the, uh, gone to Juilliard, gone to the college, but dropped out because he joined the Guy Lombardo band. And uh, so Magda was for, 
forever disappointed in her son. And when she met me, she thought, okay, this kid is going to go to Juilliard, he's going to stay on that path, and he's going to be a classical pianist. So um, the next year I auditioned for Juilliard and I got in. And it was the start of you know, the life-changing... Uh, so now get us to that moment when you start at Juilliard. What is it about starting at Juilliard that becomes so special for you? Well, Juilliard, first of all, is an amazing place. You have kids walking around at nine years old that are also writing operas and symphonies, and they're incredibly focused. And you have, like, the Asian kids who are, like, you know, practicing the piano from two years old. And so I was, you know, nine years old and talented, but I was just blending in. So it was an incredible environment. Um, and I had an amazing teacher. My teacher, whose name was Catherine Parker, was the assistant to Rosina Levine, who was the most famous piano teacher of the last 100 years. So uh, I was lucky enough to kind of have all these, this chain of events happen that led me to Juilliard, that led me to this amazing teacher who taught me how to focus and who taught me how to practice and just helped me to establish this foundation that is really the structure and the core of everything that I do in my life and in my musical life for sure. And that's, you know, when I, when I think about anything that I've accomplished musically, I just look back and I say, well, it's really because I had this, this foundation of building a really good house. You know, a lot of people just don't have that kind of, you know, background to be able to, to accord, to stand on. And I think that that's what helps me in my life to do everything that I do. So I view the, the, the day I entered Juilliard and started studying with Catherine Parker as a pivotal, you know, life kind of establishing moment in my, uh, in, you know, in my history. When you were there, if you remember, where did you sort of rank, like with other kids that were there? Like, how did you, where would you sort of place yourself given the, the talent levels of Juilliard as a, as a child? It's a really good question. What, um, what ended up happening was that I kind of stood out in my own way because, although everybody was like really talented around me, not everybody was an improviser, a natural musician, somebody who could do the classical stuff but also do other stuff. So the first thing that happened was that all the other people around me, all the other students, found out what I could do musically and were drawn to it because it was unique. So we would have times when I would literally be hanging out in the practice rooms with these other, other students and I'd be playing for them and making them smile and show them musical things. They had no idea how to play a boogie woogie or a blues or you know anything or a show tune or a Broadway you know movie thing. They just didn't know and I did and I was always very natural like that. So which was interesting because um, it set me a little bit apart from everybody else. But it was also something that like my teacher was like, you have to focus on the classical music. And although the, the teachers enjoyed the fact that I could do that, like my piano teacher really wanted me to zero in on the piano training, which I did. You know, it wasn't like I was just sloughing off and not sure. practicing classical music. Although I'd be tempted to throw in a little extra, you know, riff or something in a Mozart thing, <laughs> just for fun, if nothing else, just keep it interesting. I mean, Mozart used to improvise all the time, so I felt like it was fine to do that. You 
must have scared the hell out of them because that kind of ability to entertain people, you know, in addition to again, doing the lessons and, and maintaining what you had to, to also be able to make people smile and feel something. Right, right. Well, I think that they were a little worried that it would throw me off track. Right. That was the main thing. I mean, like, I had certain teachers I remember, uh, I don't remember his name because he was a really nice, special kind of guy, Mr. Hofstadter, who was a, a theory teacher and theory and composition. And he really appreciated my talent. He would give us an assignment where we had to take like a melody that he would write and we would all have to reharmonize it or write some counterpoint. And I'd come in and he, and I remember one day he uh, talked to me after the class. He said, Jordan, he says, you know, you're going to be able to do whatever you want in music because you have this wonderful, very unique and special talent. So, okay, you know, at that point, I was like, wow, that's, that's nice of him to say that. But, um, but definitely, you know, the, there was so much, so much ability there. But my, own, I, you know, I kind of eventually carved my own path. But my carving my own path, of course, eventually led me to leave as well, which uh, leads to uh, the next special, pivotal moment. What's the moment? <clears throat> which is when I decided to, uh, to basically drop out of Juilliard. I had, um, I had gone through the whole free college thing from nine years old. So how old are you at this point? Um, at this point, I'm in turning 18. And I'm, I had just um, auditioned again, because you have to audition at every level of Julia to <laughs> stay in the program. Wow. So the pre-college was one audition. Matter of fact, it was two, because originally um, I auditioned to get in, and then they were um, their location was up uh, where the Manhattan School of Music is right now. But when they moved to Lincoln Center, which is their current location, they did it again. They auditioned everybody who was part of the program to kind of weed out people. So when I was like 14 years old, I had to audition again to stay in the program to go to Lincoln Center and do that. Right. So at 18, or almost 18, I had to audition for the college level. And at that point, I had kind of discovered synthesizers, and I had discovered you know, Keith Emerson, and Rick Wakeman, and Patrick Mraz, and I kind of had all this stuff floating around my brain. Didn't have any idea what to do with all of that information. But I knew something, you know, something definitely brewing in my mind. Um, so I auditioned for the college, you know, there was a lot of um, pressure from the teachers and the parents to kind of do that because they had no other, you know, life path, solution, guidance or anything, especially at that point where there weren't kind of, uh, you know, resources that uh -huh. people have now. So I auditioned, I got in, I, I, I studied with this um, very intense teacher, her name was Adele Marcus, and she was like, you know, the teacher who was like basically teaching all the, all the people who were becoming, pianists on the scene. And I remember she said to my parents, she said, Jordan, he's going to emerge early as a concert pianist, and that's what's going to happen. So they were, everybody was excited, he's going to emerge early, whatever the that means. And <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I was practicing away, and I studied with her for about a half a year or so, and then, uh, you know, at the same time I was, you know, started to... Uh, Genesis and you know Gentle Giant, King Crimson, and all these things. And it was when I uh, it was when I was studying a Chopin Ballade, and I came in after studying it for a week, and I was um, playing the piece for her, and she came over and she took the music. It's like a 25-page piece. She took the music, and I stopped playing, and she said, "Well, why'd you stop?" And I was like, "Well." 
only been playing with this for a week, it's 25 pages, kind of like fish, you know, learning it. Just like, well, when you study with the Del Marcus, you have to memorize things the first week. And I thought about, you know, Keith Emerson and Rick Wakeman and Genesis and yes. And I thought, <laughs> you know what? I can't stay here. This is it. And I said, you know, I, I've got to, I'm leaving. What was the reaction? My last lesson. What was that reaction when you decided? Did oh, they think you were deep. crazy? I mean, it's one of the it's one of the most intense things that I guess I've ever done because it took a lot of balls to leave at that point. I mean, I was really, you know, I had been holding on for such a long time to this um, because it's all I, you know, it's all the guidance that I really had. I didn't. Everything else was totally like unfamiliar. Like I was told literally that rock musicians were a lower class type of citizen that I shouldn't hang out with them or jazz, they weren't as good, they weren't the same kind of quality people. I was literally convinced <laughs> that all the people doing anything with classical music were not as refined, not as, you know, it was just a whole, like, don't talk to them. But here I was, and, you know, really having this passion about a lot of the other kinds of music, and I, I really loved the progressive rock, and, you know, had, had you seen any live prog rock at that time? Did you ever go to any shows? Yeah, uh, no, and the only show that I had seen, I had a very kind of progressive-minded um, teacher, actually, growing up, that took me to see The Who do Tommy at the Fillmore East, and I was 13 years old. Wow. So I saw that. That's a moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's a moment. That completely, like, I didn't even know what to think of that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't list that as a pivotal moment because it was so fucking like unbelievable to me like everybody had their hair down to their knees I was a 13 year old kid at Juilliard completely like straight I you know the whole place smelled like pot I didn't even know what that was but it was and I had seats right in the first row of the balcony in the middle wow my teacher got these incredible seats so I'm watching that and it left looking it left a total imprint on my mind I'm not, I don't have the best memory but that because like you know those guys in the states swinging the microphone and doing the guitar thing with the arms I remember that so intensely so that was you know that was intense that was amazing and I was never a huge Who fan either but that show right. was you know it was an incredible thing to see especially looking back and understanding the importance of that it's when they first came to New York and played it so you had never seen guys like Emerson yet but yet the music you were hearing the records you were exposed to it on a certain yeah. level right, right well I was um, one of the things that was, was really meaningful to me and, and helped to, to kind of push this change was hearing the Tarkas album you know the Emerson like I had never heard specifically keyboards have that kind of power. Like I knew, I was familiar with the kind of chords he used, the kind of harmonies. For me, it was like kind of very Aaron Copeland, sure. type of thing. But I had never heard them in that context, in those powerful, you know, sounds used like that. So I was like, wow. Like I didn't know that. I didn't know you could have that kind of energy. Like taking taking the classical music, harmonic, rhythmic ideas, and applying them. To like a rock kind of feel, so I kept listening to that album and thinking, man, I can do this. This is cool. I got to get myself a synthesizer and an organ and all this stuff. And that, you know, that 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 of all the progressive rock albums was probably the one that that helped to uh, make to make this change of 
life. And, and to this day, Tarkus still has a profound effect on you. You still oh, yeah. play the music, you still showcase it and oh, celebrate it. Oh, totally. Well, you know, I would I would point to Keith Emerson as my kind of main influence in the world of, of keyboards. He, he just was. You know, just, uh, there's a lot of other keyboard players that were very meaningful and kind of uh, helped to lead me down other paths that were very important, like Patrick Mirage sure. and the way he played leads and his freedom. It's time for a commercial. We're going to come back with a couple of more moments in a minute. My name is Chris Septon. You're listening to The Moment with my very special guest, Jordan Rudis. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com all around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Ask the experts. Call toll free right now 1 866 472 5787. And ask our all star team to answer your questions. That's 1 866 472 5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Chris Epting. You are listening to The Moment in the middle of my deep and interesting conversation with the one and only keyboard wizard, Jordan Rudis from Dream Theater. In this segment, he's going to get into uh, Dream Theater and some other musical projects, big moments in his life. And again, after the third segment, we will hear Jordan play something, a beautifully prepared keyboard piece he did just for the moment. So hang in for that. And here we go with part two of my conversation with Jordan Rudis. Thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Epting. You're listening to The Moment. Back right now with my special guest, keyboard wizard extraordinaire, Jordan Rudis. Jordan, you gave us two really special moments from your life. You've got a couple of more that you sort of measure time against. What's another one? Let's see. So uh, we're up to the time, uh, the very pivotal moment where I walked out of Juilliard. Um, shall we move to the next one? Or uh, yeah. All right. So the next moment is was very very important and that was meeting my wife Danielle Um, and the reason it was so important is because at the time I was in an interesting phase and it was very difficult when I left Juilliard and all the things I had to go through I didn't know who to talk to what to do musically I had all these in well I should say I kind of knew what to do musically but I didn't know how to apply it I was told not to talk to any of the people that were (laughs) doing rock or anything it was really confusing so and there was and and there was no guidance. No one was there were no It's interesting the snobbery toward players like Emerson that, that the classical side had at that time. Because they were accomplished players. I mean these were not slouches, even though they were in prog rock bands. Right. I mean, you know, the reality of it is that the cla- you know, a cla- a great classical pianist has chops that goes beyond any, you know, let's say 99% of rock players, and that there's truth to that. Somebody like Emerson, he had an, you know, he, he had incredible talent and ability to fuse the styles together and put something together that people had, hadn't heard before. So, uh, but technique-wise, you know, you could point to a classical pianist who had as good a technique. Sure. But, um, but for me, I was uh, I was kind of like floating around. I had played in a band in Baltimore that was doing rock and disco and top forty. I was playing in hotels and bars. I was doing whatever it took to kind of like stay alive. And luckily, I could play show tunes and I could play songs from movies. And I could walk into a you know a nice restaurant and say, "Hey, do you need a pianist?" And they would say, "Okay, cool. You play well. Let's play." So it took a while for me to figure out you know what to do. I mean, I had experiences like. You know, I played in a group called Speedway Boulevard, which was uh, a group produced by the guys who uh, produced Yummy, Yummy, Yummy. I got love in my tummy. That 1910 Fruit Gum Company. Yeah, K&K Productions right. or whatever. They cranked the out all the Hell it was. Yeah, and I think after I did Speedway Boulevard, which was on Epic Records, and I thought I was going to be a big star because, like, the guy with the, the, uh, this, one of the... One of the K's, Kaznitz and Katz, would come in the studio, he'd hear the song, he'd slam his fist down on the, the table, say, this is a hit, this is a hit. <laughs> I was a young kid, you know. He's paying me $50 a week to be in the studio, and I was happy because I was making money playing music. 
And uh, and then the guy, this guy Lenny Pizzi from Epic Records arrives in his black limousine, literally with a big cigar. Or, you know, it's like the totally typical stuff. And walks in, and he says, hey, hey, hey. you know, he's got us all kind of, everybody's, we're all excited. We take the, uh, you know, the band picture, and, uh, and, I, and I flash back to that every time I take a picture with Dream Theater, where I'm just standing there looking tough and cool, you know. So anyway, so that... So that album came out, and three, week, three weeks later, they pulled it off the shelves, and <laughs> you never saw it again. I think K&K went down to Rio, and were escaping some tax issues. <laughs> I don't have any, it literally disappeared so strangely. They, those guys had to be running. There had to be something going on there that they just, you know, I don't know. Welcome to the music business. <laughs> it was a pretty good album, though. I threw in some prog riffs, you know, it was cool. But so I was you know, trying to figure out what to do. And I ended up actually in New York City with um, with a company that was doing um, audio and visual stuff for some of the some of the eight bit computers that really had crappy, crappy audio and crappy visuals. But I was there. Um, the same teacher who brought me to see The Who when I was 13 had started this company and kind of went on his own. And uh, it was so many years later, but he brought me in to help to uh, raise money by playing the piano for stock investors to show them how we knew music. You know, he'd bring me down. We all had places. He'd, Jordan play a little bit for these guys, and I'd play a few riffs, and they'd put the money on the table, and they'd leave. And that was my job. In the middle of all that, I met Danielle, and, uh, and she and I, we basically started, you know, our larger vision uh, and the first thing that had to happen was we had to get out of there. And even though I was making decent money as this guy who would come down occasionally and play a few piano riffs for the investors, we wanted to start our lives together. So um, we left and we ended up moving up to Woodstock and uh, again, kind of supporting myself doing the restaurants and bars or whatever. But that quickly changed because um, <clears throat> Danielle said to me one, one day, she said, you got to... You know, you're really talented. We got to we got to figure this out, and you have to stop playing in bars and you know make some calls. Let's see who do we know, what can we do, and um, so with that kind of like force energy behind me, I started to think about who do I know, what can I do, and I called up uh, Jack Hotop, who is my friend who worked at Korg and uh, who was back down on Long Island. And I said, hey, you know, I need to, uh, I really want to come down, get involved with something down there. And so I ended up getting a, a gig being a product specialist for Korg. And, um, and that job was amazing for me because it brought Danielle and I back to, uh, you know, the metropolitan area. And by playing with Korg, it, I was using that job to kind of help to, get my career going. I would come to the NAM shows, which of course we're sitting at a NAM show now, but I'd come to the NAM shows and I'd prepare these crazy compositions, these prog things, and you know, just like perform at the shows. And in those days the like keyboard magazine was a big deal and they'd be writing about me and, you know, about being a highlight of the show. And so I started to do get things like I won the Best New Talent uh, Award, Keyboard Magazine people would notice me I started to get cool gigs like I played um, I played keyboards on a Vinnie Moore album Vinnie Moore was you know in the Ingve Malmsteen kind of like chain of stuff and he was very successful back then so playing on his album was pivotal Jan Hammer um, <clears throat> Jan Hammer called me up one day 
uh, and he had me come out to play with him and Tony Williams. I had no idea who Tony Williams was at the time. Uh, of course, you know, after I finished that gig and played a whole bunch of shows, everybody said, you played with Tony Williams? Oh my God. I was like, well, who, what do you mean? He told me, who's Tony Williams? He said, well, Tony Williams is one of the greatest drummers of all time. I said, really? I had no idea. Like, <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. I was told not to talk to the jazz people. So, uh, <laughs> so meeting Danielle, aside from having relationships with your wife, she's also instrumental in really lighting a fire under you. Well, so, yes. Well, first of all, Danielle did that. But Danielle, you know, she, um, she is a producer and she has that kind of mindset. So she is great at making things happen. You know, she, uh, the, like, she's the one who got Jan Hammer in to even see me play. She figured out how to bring him into the room to hear me play at NAMM. She, um, we just got off a, actually, we, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, but we just got off a world tour um, where I was able to bring my, my piano playing all around the world, and Danielle produced and managed that whole thing. So I, I see when people, you know, when young musicians ask me for tips and advice, I say, you know what, you should marry a producer. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> it really helps. You know, I'm, I'm a spacey, floaty musician just doing my thing and having, a, you know, a partner who is able to kind of navigate and work in the real world and get things done like that has been, you know, the, uh, you know one of the most important you know, it's a big moment. Yeah, you know, it's a big moment, and it's a big, big part of my life. You know, she, she definitely. You know, I can't give her enough credit because that would be impossible. I can only hope to come through in the musical level when, when I'm supposed to and make things work. You know, so uh, yeah, it's an, an important. Uh, so what's another stuff. moment that you said you read another one from this kind of period? The the, the next uh, uh, moment is saying yes to Dream Theater. Um, Tell you know, about that. What got you to that point? I had said yes to Dream Theater as far as joining the band. Actually, the second time they asked me. The first time they asked me, I said no. So we're in about 1998. 1998, I guess yeah. it was. Um, when I finally said yes, it was 1998. Um, so I had experiences leading up to that. The first time they asked me is when Kevin Moore had left the band. It was after they did the Awake album. Kevin had left, and they didn't really know what to do, and they were searching for a keyboard player. They called up Jan Hammer's manager to see if maybe Jan wanted to do it. They didn't know, really know about me. And uh, Jan's manager said, well, Jan can't really do it. He's not into it, but you should call Jordan Rudis. So um, that plus the fact, as I understand it, that Kevin Moore was kind of a fan of mine. So he also had mentioned me a couple times to them. And I was also in Keyboard Magazine as the best new talent. And so there's a whole page dedicated. And all the magazines had kind of like the best new talent or sure. best player. So the combination of things led them to call me. They had all won in their categories, the drummer, the guitar, the bass. And so they figured, <laughs> oh, well, we might as well we need, get yeah, the guy who is the best in his area. So they called me up. Um, to come down and audition and uh, some friends of mine told me oh this is a great group you know I had no idea who we, Dream was Theater a, was were that familiar with them nothing at all? I knew, didn't know anything wow. but a friend came over and played me some of their stuff and I thought <clears throat> this group is really cool wow they really are virtuosic and they fuse metal with prog and do it in a really interesting way and I liked it I thought it was I thought it was unique I hadn't heard those kind of chops in rock music before 
it was so they were so accurate so tight and they had heavy stuff but they also had prog anyway it was enough that I wanted to go down and audition so I went into New York City and uh, you know I had my audition and I liked the guys and they I learned a couple of songs I learned pull me under and take the time and I showed him how to play a little bit of my song called over the edge which was something I did with Rod Morgenstein uh, in the Rudis Morgenstein project. Anyway, I showed it to those guys, the first part of it, so they could learn something of mine. We had a really good time, and they got excited, and I was excited about it. But then when it all came down to like the offer and the reality of what, what it was going to be, I kind of looked at my life. Danielle and I had our first child, Ariana, at the time. I was... Um, I had gotten a job with Kurzweil doing some like product specialist types of stuff. And I also had the opportunity or the offer to join the Dixie Dregs at the exact same time that I had the offer to join Dream Theater. So I kind of balanced it out, all the factors, personal, emotional, financial, life stuff. And I figured that, you know what, Dream Theater's a cool group, but I don't know what's going to happen with them at this point, but I do know if I stay home, it'll be better for the family. A guy representing Mike Portnoy to um, join a super group. I didn't know what a super group was at that time. I don't think anybody really did, but they had this concept of a super group. And uh, so the super group was a group with Portnoy on drums, Tony Levin playing bass, and as it worked out, John Petrucci playing guitar. So I said yes to that. I thought that that sounded really cool. This was liquid tension. Liquid tension experiment. So, um, so just to kind of move through that quickly, so I played, I did two albums with liquid tension experiment. It was very cool. I got to work with John and Mike, who I liked a lot, and who we had a bond with musically. Didn't join Dream Theater, but then was doing that. Uh, the first liquid tension album came out. It was very successful. One of the most successful rock instrumental albums ever put out. And the second one was the same. And at the end of putting out those albums, basically the last day of recording, the guys approached me again and, and said, Jordan, you know, we would love you to join Dream Theater. What do you think at this point? Do you want to do, you want to, do, you want to do it? Uh, and in those days, uh, Derek Sherinian was playing with them. But I think that they felt the real camaraderie with me in the studio and personally and compositionally and in, in all ways and, uh, and wanted me to join. So at that point I said yes. And the rest as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The rest is definitely history. And here we are actually today and we're uh, with Dream Theater we're ready to embark on a 20 year anniversary tour of Scenes from a Memory which was the first album that I recorded with Dream Theater. A very meaningful album to me and a very meaningful album to a lot of people around the world. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. My name is Chris Epping. Quick commercial break and then back for another segment with the one and only Jordan Rudis. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. 
Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. MailJet is changing how teams email with the launch of their collaboration toolkit. Create and send emails with your team faster with real-time collaboration and in-app commenting. Learn why businesses like Product Hunt, Microsoft, Avis, and more send millions of emails every day with MailJet at hello.mailjet.com forward slash voice and try MailJet Premium for one month free. That's hello.mailjet.com forward slash voice. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Hey there, back again. I am Chris Epting. You are listening to The Moment. And we're going to jump back in here with the great keyboard player, Jordan Rudis of Dream Theater, where he talks about the new Dream Theater record, his new record. This is a nice segment. I hope you enjoy it. And a reminder, right afterwards, we're going to actually hear Jordan play in a very special piece that he prepared just for the moment. But here is part three of my interview with Jordan Rudis. Thank you for listening to The Moment. I'm Chris Epting. Welcome back to The Moment. I am Chris Epting, joined today by my special guest, keyboard extraordinaire, Jordan Rudis. Jordan, the last segment you were talking about the upcoming Dream Theater Tour and why it's such a special anniversary for you. 
yeah, it's uh, it's amazing because you know things have really lined up um, to where we're going to be going out and, and doing this tour. And part of the tour is, of course, showing our new album, Distance Distance Over Time, and uh, and playing songs from that. But also, it's about scenes from a memory. It's 20 years now, and the second set is going to be us playing that album from start to finish. So. I'm very excited about that. You know, everybody is. For me, it's, uh, it's you know, marking history. It's 20 years. Basically, you know, I joined the group right before that. I walked in the studio to record that. And uh, I remember, you know, going, walking into the studio with Dream Theater thinking it was going to be very much the same kind of thing as Liquid Tension. But, of course, it turned out to be totally different. It wasn't only that now we had a shorter Asian bass player with black hair and we didn't have the tall guy with long fingers and, you know, playing the stick or whatever. It was that the whole dynamic had changed and everything had changed. And um, so it, it kind of, like, brought me into this phase where, you know, my life really, really did change. It opened me up to a whole international world. Right. Um, I met people all over the world. I played all over the world. It was really, uh, it, it was amazing. It was, it was so life-changing, so enriching to be able to play concerts for so many people with these guys, you know, in every country, like everywhere. Um, and to be able to go out and do that this year after 20 years, uh, more like 21 years of being in this band and showing our new album, which which I'm so proud of. It has a lot, you know, the new album to me is very energized. It's, it's all of us kind of coming into this place where we're just kind of feeling really good and feeling strong and, you know, in a way returning to our roots, but also in a way just kind of like nailing it down and saying, okay, you know, we still have the, the passion and the drive and the energy to, to have fun and to just do this. So this album, this album and this tour, it's a very exciting year. The album, I think, is really, really strong. The tour is really important. It's kind of a, a historical, you know, point. And uh, yeah, it's good. It, we're, we're, we're sitting here speaking at the beginning of what looks like it's going to be a really great, you know. Great well, time. and on the heels of that, after the Dream Theater record this April, you have a project, a solo project coming yeah. out that I've been privileged enough to hear and I think it's really special. Why don't you talk a little bit about that because I know it means a lot to you. It's another yeah. moment, I mean, yeah, another one of these so, crazy uh, moments. You know, my new album, which is coming out on April 19th, is called Wired for Madness, um, which um, it's a very important album for me because I haven't done a rock album in a long time. The last one I did was... Uh, the Road Home, which was an album where I covered some of my very favorite progressive rock, and, you know, uh, after that I decided to do some piano albums to self-release, independent stuff, you know, the record business has changed so much, I really got burned by, you know, some record companies in the past, very badly, so it was kind of a journey for me to come back to a point where I could um, feel comfortable and excited about working with uh, a new record company, and this company's Mascot Records, one of the one of the coolest record companies that I've ever really known. Um, so, yeah, I'm really super excited about uh, not only the music that I created for it and everything around the album, but also working with this company that's so supportive and so energized and so into it, and passionate. I just got off the phone with the artist today, who's just you know, with the guy who's doing all the layout stuff, and they're just so nice and they're so like behind me. Um, 
And so it's been, you know, it's a whole lot of work. Well, what excites you about the music on it? Because there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of stuff jumped out at me. What what, what was for you kind of a standout moment on the the record? The way this album got started musically is that... I, ha- I, f- I saw some time in my schedule to do these kind of huge projects. Uh, I don't know about you, you probably can relate as a, as a writer, but for me, to do something really major, I need to kind of see that I'm going to have a block of time to dive in. But the hardest part is to get these these big endeavors started. Once you're in it and you're, you're moving, then I find I, uh, it's, it's easier. But to get it going is like the hardest thing. So I found it was a summer... A, 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 summer months and I thought okay well I have time to do this and so I would walk into the studio and I'd start to just lay some stuff down and I got into this thing where every day I'd go in and I'd put down eight sixteen measures another section whatever but I kept cracking away at it and I realized I was creating something really insane like this was Jordan Rudis at his most nutty crazy place musically and um, and that actually turned out to be the, the title track, this Wired for Madness. It's actually a 33-minute piece, which is in two parts in different sections. It's one of these, like, you know, I guess, like, classic... In terms of scope, it's classic prog. In terms of music, it's crazy prog. Um, I'm kind of calling it, like, hyper-prog, because you have to really fasten your seatbelt to go for this musical journey. It's a commitment. This is not background music. I don't recommend listening to this while you do other stuff. I, I really do seriously suggest going old school, sitting between the speakers and cranking it up and clearing your schedule for 33 minutes or just throwing on some headphones and really going for the ride because it's truly a ride. And uh, and so I'm very, like, you know, I put it out there. I'm very proud of that. Now, my wife, who, who we spoke earlier about, who, uh, of course, is my, my you know, producer, she said to me one day, she said, you know what, this is great that you're doing that, but you have to make some music that's also, like, you know, like more easily digestible, and you can't just do, like, this crazy, crazy stuff, and she was right, that the whole album couldn't be insane, although I was thinking for a little while it could, but when she said that, uh, at first I was feeling, oh, I don't know, like, but whatever, but I went in the studio and I composed some songs that were, uh, I thought this, the other, another side of me, I love, yeah. I love, you know, mellow, spacey things. When people ask me what kind of music I, I listen to, I always say, well, you know, I listen to like Stephen Wilson, and I listen to like Blackfield and Tangerine Dream and Sigur Ross and, you know, and things that are just really calm. So yeah. I love that, you know. Um, so I went in and I composed uh, uh, Off the Ground, which is another song on the album. Mellow, kind of Genesis-like, yeah. some piano or just for today, which is also you know kind of proggy, but really really mellow. I was inspired to do a blues because uh, it's kind of a slightly proggish blues because um, Mascot Records is is also well known for having Joe Bonamassa on their label, and Joe is like the you know big big guy on the label, and I love Joe's playing and I love the blues and my kind of alter ego in Dream Theater is blues man, because as you can hear in the mornings. My voice is very low, and I can kind of go into that blues uh, space pretty easily. So they call me blues man. So I thought, okay, Joe Bonamassa, blues man, let's do a blues. So uh, I put together a blues. I got a real brass ensemble on it. Joe Bonamassa is playing on it. The song is called Just Can't Win. It's uh, it's an all-out blues production. I'm singing on it. 
Um, so the album turned out to be uh, a re- it's a real mix of what I do. It's also you know focused. It's a rock album. It's got elements of electronic. It's it's progressive, hyper progressive, and it's coming out soon. I'm super excited about it. Well, I've heard it. I love it. I think you're right. For all of the craziness, there are also some really accessible pieces. It's a really nice blend and certainly speaks to your uh, your range and scope and breadth of what you do. Jordan, I want to thank you for highlighting these moments. It's been a real pleasure catching up with you, my friend. I wish awesome. you a, a you. wonderful uh, year on the road. I know you have a lot coming up, and maybe we'll check back in with you as the tours uh, yeah, right. unfold. Okay? Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Chris. There we go, my conversation with Jordan Rudis. For more about Jordan, you can check out his official website, which is jordanrudis.com. And for information on the upcoming Dream Theater tour, that would be dreamtheater.net. As I mentioned at the top of the show, right now, something really special that Jordan created just for the moment. And it's a it's a four-minute or so piece of him playing keyboards, kind of explaining his, uh, his innovative uh, playing styles, his background, his history. This is really special. So I hope you can just take a few minutes, tune out whatever else you're doing, and check out this piece created by Jordan Rudis, especially for our show here at the moment. Here we go. I was a young student at Juilliard. Of course, I was pretty serious about my classical studies, but I was also into some stuff that they really didn't want me to be doing. I played blues, because I was always an improviser. So I'd have a lot of fun, and I'd bring my fellow students down the uh, hallway to the furthest room from my teacher's ears as possible. And I do all kinds of crazy stuff to make them smile. Blues and some boogie. beginning of kind of like experimenting with all the different styles at the same time as keeping my classical music going. Well, it was one day that a friend came over and turned me on to this. Classic Keith Emerson. I was really into the kind of chords. Even more than the chords, I was into the power of the music, the kind of volume and sounds and rock energy behind the keyboard playing. That really led me on a path towards moving away from the classical stuff and eventually, of course, I left Juilliard. Well, around that time, I also got exposed to the great Patrick Mraz and all the amazing things he was doing with the pitch wheel. You know, to that point, I was playing piano, and on the piano, you can do great things, but you can't change the pitch. But on a synthesizer, you could. And I started to hear him do pitch bending stuff, you know, like taking the wheel and the joystick and... So I thought, wow, a keyboard player can bend the pitch. I 
bothered my parents until one day they brought me a mini mode which had a pitch wheel and I practiced all these exercises, kind of like classical exercises. To develop my pitch wheel technique. These days when I use the pitch wheel, I can also apply like really cool feedback. role of the keyboard player has gotten really, really cool to where you can bend pitch and play organs and keyboards and all kinds of sounds. And of course, one of my favorite things to do these days is to do really intense kind of layering big sounds. getting ready to embark on a huge dream theater tour that'll take us all around the world for our new album, Distance Over Time, and at the same time getting ready to release my solo album, Wired for Madness, on April 19th. So my friends, I will see all of you on the road. <laughs> I'm sitting here smiling listening to that because I know what it looked like. It was actually a video that Jordan Rudis made for the moment where he's doing all that playing. And um, what I want to do is actually create a YouTube channel for the moment, you know, to include a variety of video pieces, but especially that one. Because when you see Jordan there at home in his studio, making this all look so easy, there's something surreal about somebody who's that talented, who can, whose abilities are so fluid and facile that he just makes it look like nothing. I know it's not. This is somebody who studied, um, you know, playing his whole life, but but clearly he has a born gift that is just different than a lot of other keyboard players. And if you've ever seen Dream Theater live, you know that what he brings uh, to the show is something uh, so powerful and so intense and so entertaining. He's a really good entertainer. And what I love about Jordan is he juxtaposes that where he can do a solo tour like he just did all around the world with he and a grand piano. So it's not all about just electronics and theatrics. At the end of the day, when he sits down um, at a grand piano, that's really what he's all about. He's as much a concert pianist as he is, uh, you know, a rock and roll uh, showman. And and again, that kind of bag of gifts is just so so rare and so unique. And I'm very, very happy to have known Jordan as long as I have and, and to call him a friend. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, again, keep an eye out for his solo record and the Dream Theater Tour. I want to tell you, next week is going to be something really special. I can't tell you what it is yet, but it's, uh, but it's a guest who has not done an interview in a long, long time. And he's got uh, some very cool news that he'll be talking about for the very first time here on The Moment. We'll be going through moments of his life. And I think that the uh, the news he will be on there to share actually constitutes an important moment in his life. So with all of that teasing, I hope that's, uh, that's enough for you to join me next week again, Thursday mornings here on The Moment. Of course, the show is available all over the place afterwards on Spotify, on Stitcher, on iTunes. Just look up The Moment with Chris Epting. 
Tell a friend, share it. I really appreciate it. I also want to acknowledge and thank, as always, uh, Aaron Keller, who's back in the studio in Phoenix, the engineer taking care of all this. Makes it so much fun and so easy. Aaron, thank you, man. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I look forward to you joining me again right here on The Moment next week. Thanks for being here. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.